This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello everyone, welcome to Llama Live, I think that's what we'll call it, a Twitter Spaces conversation about human longevity, healthy ageing, health span, the issues that we discuss on the Live Long and Master Ageing podcast, that's where the acronym Llama comes from. This is a conversation that's being recorded, we'll publish it as a Llama episode in the next few days and you'll be able to hear it at all of the usual podcasting platforms. So welcome if you're just joining me in this Twitter space. The idea is that we're going to discuss for the next 30 minutes or so some longevity issues. I'd like to focus on the topic that has dominated all of our lives for the past year and a half, slightly more than that, COVID-19, and the lessons that we could learn from the pandemic as we move forward with our lives and focus on our health and well-being. What we're not going to do is have a politically charged conversation about vaccines, mask mandates and public policy on COVID. All of that is important, but it's not an avenue that I want to go down in this particular space. With us is Dr. Felice Gersh. Felice is a frequent guest on the podcast. She is an integrative medicine specialist, an integrative gynaecologist, to be precise, with a keen interest in longevity issues. Felice, hello. Oh, hi. It's a great pleasure to join you again today. It's good to talk to you. And I know that this particular space is uh, new to both of us. So we're feeling our way. I thank you for being here. We last spoke on the podcast last year towards the beginning of the pandemic. And I think we're now at a stage probably that neither of us, really none of us could have imagined a year and a half later, September 2021, with still a large number of people in hospital and dying from COVID. But we have, it is fair to say, learned a lot. And really a a general question for you, Felice, to start with, as a doctor dealing with this every day, what is your assessment of where we are now? Well, in terms of what we've really learned about COVID, I think we have learned a great deal. And it's really reduced the mortality rate for people who end up in the hospital very ill. However, as you commented, there's still way too many people who are ill and in in the hospital. So we know that this is a virus that can transform into variants that then can come back and really bite us hard like we are now being you know, basically decimated in some parts of the country by the this new Delta variant. And we know that there is you know, certainly great hope with the vaccines, but we also know there's a little bit of disappointment in terms of them not really preventing all infections, but really the greatest hope is that they'll prevent the worst cases of morbidity and mortality, which of course is really what changes people's lives, not just having a bad essentially like a bad cold for a few days. We've learned so much about what goes into putting people at risk and what we really can do. And this has probably been my biggest disappointment is the lack of emphasis on the issues that we can control. For example, we cannot control age. And we know that the elderly are much more at risk of getting severe COVID. But all the other pre-existing morbidities, there really hasn't been enough focus on what people can actually do to recognize risk and then take positive steps 
to lower their risk and to help their loved ones to lower their risk by looking at who is um, really getting the worst outcomes when they get infected with COVID. And and those are really the big lessons that I think that that really should be um, just you know, yelled from the mountaintops that everybody can learn how we can really impact the outcomes of so many people. Yeah, and I think that is really interesting. And for all of the the tragedy of the last year and a half, we have learned some lessons. And those are, in many cases, are very simple lessons, aren't they, about the the way that we live our lives every day, the emphasis that we put on our diet and our exercise regimes that can have such positive benefits in terms of immunity that could potentially prevent us maybe not getting a virus like this in the future, but perhaps protect us from some of the more serious implications. Absolutely. And you said a key word there, said our immune system. And that's really what it's all about is maintaining a functional immune system. When you look at who is at the greatest risk in terms of comorbidities, it turns out that it's people with hypertension. And most people don't understand, even medical professionals, the link between hypertension and immune function. And it's really huge because hypertension is not an early stage of of a medical problem. It's really a later stage. And the reason that people have hypertension is because they actually have a dysregulated immune system Part of the inflammatory response that is life-saving under the conditions where we're traumatized or we get an active infection is to create some vasoconstriction, sort of contraction and narrowing of the arteries to maintain blood pressure. So you don't go into shock and if you have blood loss and you can maintain your blood pressure, which is key to being alive. But when you have a low-grade state of chronic inflammation in the body, which is really a dysregulated immune system, you will develop hypertension. And that is, you know, really interesting in terms of that is the number one of all the comorbidities that is associated with terrible outcomes when you get infected with this virus. And that is such a clue. I mean, that's from once we recognize that as like a huge clue that it's all about the functionality of the immune system and how to do everything we can to optimize its function, and then looking at the different factors that come into play that influence the immune system and what we can actually do about it. I'm curious, and I heard someone say this the other day, I'm curious about the upcoming flu season, how what we've gone through and the way that we've behaved over the last year or so could impact our immunity against the regular flu virus or whatever the flu virus is most prominent this coming season. The fact that we've been practicing social distancing, that we've been wearing face masks, could that mean that more of us will suffer from the flu during the winter period? Well, if people continue to mask up and, you know, really try to avoid a lot of crowded indoor situations, we'll probably have a lower flu season like we did last year. But the flu is a very powerful agent in causing immune dysfunction. In fact, we now know that people who have the flu in the the short term after they even recover from the flu, they have a significant increased risk of having a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. So it actually creates a low-grade state of inflammation that can persist even after the flu. So if you combine that with 
you know, a pandemic with COVID, that would put people who have the flu. I mean, this is still hypothetical because we really haven't experienced a flu season with COVID because last year we pretty much avoided a flu season. But the flu would then affect the immune system hypothetically in a way that creates this low-grade state of chronic inflammation that we know, this has been proven, predisposes people to having heart attacks, would also predispose them to having a bad outcome from COVID if they then catch COVID in the like few weeks following having the flu. So that would be very worrisome definitely. And then especially when you add in the many comorbidities that people have in this country, and of course, age, which we can't avoid, but we can do everything we can to ameliorate the effects of aging, we could have an even more explosive condition in terms of you know, tra- challenging our healthcare system and having many more people suffer from the consequences of a bad outcome from COVID. Yeah, I I suppose what I'm wondering is uh, clearly long term, let's hope that we don't need to continue to wear masks and and practice uh, the kind of social distancing that we've got used to. And to some extent, correct me if I'm wrong, but the very fact that we are social animals helps us with our immunity because we do expose ourselves to a certain extent to maybe a common cold or a more serious influenza. And long term, that exposure is actually beneficial for us, isn't it? Well, absolutely. In childhood, you know, they have this whole hygiene hypothesis where if you make things too clean, too sterile, that children won't have, you might say, practice with their immune systems to have exposures to a whole variety of of pathogens that are of relatively low pathology-causing capabilities so that they can actually sort of practice their immune building and and develop antibodies to a whole wide array of different types of infectious pathogens. Once um, you're an adult and you already hopefully have pretty much set your immune system, if you are a vulnerable adult, you know, with a lot of coexisting morbidities and so on, and or just because of your age, then um, we have to think about you know, protecting those people. But in terms of young people, absolutely, we have to. That's why they talk about, you know, having more pets, being in the wild, like getting a little dirty is actually great. The more, And now we've learned that as far as food and that we want to expose very young children to many different types of food so that their bodies get used to it. Their immune systems recognize what real food is so that they don't develop food allergies to things that their bodies haven't been exposed to when they're children. So for sure, children, it's really, I do worry about that. What's the long-term implications of isolating children and keeping them from, you know, being around other kids and actually getting colds when they're young? Because like, like anything, we've learned this really if any if anything we've learned it's that the children's immune systems are definitely more resilient than the older people's immune systems so yes little kids definitely need to get lots of different exposures yeah exactly i think that's a fascinating and 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 very important point to raise i see we're getting a few people joining us in the conversation which is great if anyone wants to ask a, a question just request to be able to speak and i can 
facilitate that, hopefully, and uh, let you ask a, a question as well. The other big issue, Felice, that really comes home to me, and uh, I remember what happened to the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who, by his own acknowledgement, uh, was overweight, and we all know how badly he suffered from COVID-19, and it really prompted a, a change in, in British government policy towards being overweight and uh, the obesity problem that's affecting not just the UK, but the United States and much of the Western world. And it's really highlighted the importance of of diet and uh, living within a a good weight range, that something as, as, as simple as that can dramatically affect our ability to resist a, a virus like this. Oh, absolutely. It gets back to really the foundations of having a functional immune system and a, a basically a healthy set of organs that are going to be be able to be resilient if they're exposed to such a pathogen like this one, and also to have an immune system that can actually properly do what an immune system needs to do. And, and that's where this underlying set of you know inflammatory processes, when they occur in someone who is obese, and it can manifest with hypertension and diabetes and cardiovascular disease, because they're all different manifestations of this underlying state of chronic low-grade inflammation. And it sounds at first, well, you know, if I have this like low-grade of inflammation, isn't my body actually fighting already? And it's actually not. It's like going in circles. It's, it's actually totally dysfunctional. Because when you get infected, with a pathogen like a virus, what you want is your body immediately to have this incredible, robust immune response where your immune cells rush to the scene of where this pathogen, this virus is coming in and then put out all of like the little um, signals to the other immune cells to really have the whole crowd come and then put out the little toxins that are own like endogenous venoms that can kill and destroy and, and then we gobble up all of those pathogens. And that really requires a very robust immune system. And then it has to go through the process of inflammation resolution and healing. And people who are obese, people who have all of the manifestations of low-grade chronic inflammation, cardiovascular disease, and hypertension, their immune systems can't go through these processes. And so they don't have a big, powerful immune response at the initiation of the infection. And then they also can't go through that resolution phase where they shut down inflammation. And that's how they can end up with those cytokine storms where their inflammation just is like, um, you know, a train without brakes and it just can't, can't get it back into control. And obesity is really a cardinal, you know, we'll say like signal flag to anyone around to that person themselves that your body is probably producing a great deal of this chronic inflammatory cytokine material that is going to impede your body's ability to have a functional immune system at every stage of an of every at every stage of an infection. And Felisa, I'm curious from your perspective as a as a working doctor dealing with this, these these issues every day. Have you noticed a change in attitude from from your patients, from people in general, towards their own personal health and how they look after themselves, hopefully during the normal times that we will enjoy once again in the future? Because we are curious beings. We have short memories. Sometimes we will go on a health kick and then forget it. Do you think what we've gone through over the last year and a half has impacted people enough for them to change their lifestyles? Well, I have a very um, 
I would say, unique set of patients in that they are more, in general, more motivated. And I do think that this has definitely motivated more people throughout the country than than previously. But I think there's still a lot of work to be done. In my own patient population, there has been incredible interest in how to create a really robust immune system and a healthy body. And also thinking about sort of like the fine tuning issues, like am I micronutrient deficient in, in certain nutrients that are essential to having a healthy body? Probably the one that's gotten the most attention has been vitamin D. And although it's a little late in the game, there's actually now been some good published studies showing that, yes, no surprise to those of us who've been dealing with this for years, that vitamin D actually matters. And people with very low levels of vitamin D are more apt to have bad outcomes from COVID. So, you know, you want to definitely look at your micronutrient status. Like, do you have enough of even like vitamin B12, the different vitamins like vitamin C? So just giving one vitamin in isolation when they do studies often doesn't show robust changes because everything works in an interactive manner. So it's really the total package. And of course, the way you ultimately get the total package for most nutrients is through eating the proper diet. So um, definitely, um, I've had patients who've really turned it around. It's like, I'm not eating just, you know, chips and fries and burgers. I'm going to start eating a more plant-based diet and looking at nurturing my gut microbiome by eating more legumes, more resistant starch, you know, like even like green bananas or plantain and cold potatoes and so on recognizing there's a real importance in having probiotic foods like fermented foods like we had we served sauerkraut with my dinner last night you know and I really hadn't done enough of that before so I think that all of us are you know should be aware and many of us have but there's still a lot of work to be done you know but and certainly in my own patient practice um, I have definitely seen my own um, group of patients to be I'm much more hyper alert as to what they're eating and how they're doing and, you know, having a better fitness status, getting more sleep, because we know that melatonin is a very, very potent antioxidant. And there have been some data looking at, well, melatonin levels. Well, the best way to get melatonin is by getting a good night's sleep. And that means going to bed at the right time, sleeping in a very dark room so you don't have the, the light filtering through your eyelids, which can actually reduce melatonin production. So yeah, I would say that there, you know, looking at silver linings, I would say that more awareness of having underlying good health and what it really means to outcomes when you become infected with something like this is really um, growing. Yeah, underlying good health is, uh, I think, probably the the most prominent point that I'm, I'm trying to make with this conversation. That uh, it is so essentially important to all of us that that's what we focus on. You mentioned vitamin D, of course. The solution, or part of the solution for that, is simply get out in the sunshine, uh, take your sunglasses off, ideally an early morning walk. It helps with the circadian rhythm. It's not something we're lucky. You and I, we live in California. It's quite easy to do. But sunshine is a big part of the solution, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I actually talk about that sunshine is medicine. So we actually have receptors in our eyes that actually pick up sunlight, not for the purpose of just like is it day or night, which it does as well, but actually to signal to our serotonin neurons in our brain to actually trigger the production of more serotonin. So when we 
have more sunlight, we actually have more serotonin. We don't need to take Prozac. We feel happier. We feel calmer. And serotonin is the precursor to melatonin. So then we'll sleep better. And everyone knows that they spent a day out at the beach or out at the park and they've been in the sun all day. They sleep like a baby at night. And why is that? Because they're finally making adequate melatonin and they're feeling happy and calm because they got all that sunshine medicine and they made serotonin in greater quantities. So absolutely, I mean, I, I, I used to argue with dermatologists. It's like sunlight is not evil. Like everything, you need it in the right dose. And we all know that, well, we actually, everyone should know that a little bit, an adequate amount of sunlight on the skin. I mentioned how there are receptors in the eye that we, when we get the sunlight, we make more serotonin than more melatonin. But there are in our skin, when we get sunlight on our skin, not only do we make the precursors for vitamin D, but a whole host of other antioxidants that maintain the health of our skin and our bodies as a whole. So absolutely, sunlight is medicine and sunshine is our friend and not, not just for mood. People know that as we're heading towards winter in some areas of the, the world, you have what is called seasonal affective disorder because you don't get enough sunlight and then you don't make enough serotonin and then you feel depressed. So those of us who have sunshine much of the year and we are lucky, we should get out and enjoy it. But wherever you are, take advantage of the hours of the day that do provide adequate sun so that we can get that very powerful medicine, sunlight. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. And more generally, Felice, I wanted to have this live conversation. Hopefully we'll do lots more about the broader subject of human longevity and health span, which we haven't really touched on today very much. Health span being the number of years that we enjoy optimum health as opposed to lifespan, which is quite simply the number of years that we're alive, but not necessarily towards the end enjoying the best of health. I have noticed in the last certainly a uh, few years, two or three years, an explosion in interest and understanding of what health span and what it means to, to study longevity is and that there is perhaps it's still slow but people are becoming more and more aware of why these issues are so crucially important to us and I know you have a, a broad area of interest in terms of medicine but you are particularly focused on longevity. Oh absolutely and, and you know it's very discouraging this past year when they said that the average lifespan has actually gone down. I mean that's like yeah. the of everything we're looking to create and that, um, you know, the, the number of deaths from COVID that came out with that one in 500 Americans died from COVID. And so this has definitely impacted longevity. And almost everyone knows someone who did succumb to, to COVID. So I think this really put it front and center, the whole idea of healthy longevity. So it is so key. It's, it's what life is about, you know, is having 
living to the fullest, being able to do what you want. Nobody wants to just be alive. We all want to be able to be alive and then be able to go out dancing or play or hike and, and have a great life. And, and that's really the focus of everything I do every day when I go to my office is help everyone to achieve an optimal state of health so that they can then maintain it. Because this comes up all the time that the life that you lead when you're younger has an enormous impact on what happens in the next many decades to come. So that's why, you know, you it's just like you have to start saving for retirement when you're younger, not like the day before you retire. You have to start saving your health account when you're young so that as you get older, you'll have resilience so that you would be like in decades to come if you're young right now and you're listening, that when you're old, you won't be in the group that you know succumbs to things that are more common to kill off the older people because we know that just age alone is not the determinant of so much. We can control so much of our biological age uh, versus our like theoretical age and you know, our practical age or our health age versus our chronological age. So we can do so much, and that's really what I emphasize in my practice all the time. Yeah, and that statistic that you mentioned that I heard this morning, one in 500 people here in the United States dying from COVID really hit home. It's it's a dramatic number, and I hope it does help to focus minds. And the other point you make about we really need to encourage people to start thinking about longevity younger in their lives, because that's when you can really make a, a significant difference. And I think if there is some work to be done in this field, in this space of longevity, it is to get that message across, because it's still, I think, sometimes seen as an issue that affects older people, whether it's the over 50s or, or 60s, that that's when people begin to think about aging. Maybe that's when people notice the, the physical impact of aging. But for to, in terms of societies across the world, to make a big difference, it's to get the message across that you really need to think about it, well, from your teens upwards. Yeah, it's so important. One of the things that actually is now coming out about COVID that is both um, worrisome as well as fascinating is that the individuals who develop what has been labeled long COVID, one of the theories now that is really growing is that what long COVID is, is that the virus has actually impacted the immune system to create accelerated aging, that it's actually perpetuating the state of chronic low-grade inflammation that we associate with aging and metabolic dysfunction, so they call like inflammaging, that it's developing this state of like inflammaging in younger people, that is what long COVID is, and, and it's basically like accelerating aging. And so that would be a very strong incentive to, to me to get vaccinated. You know, if we can, well, we don't have all the data, but we don't want to have long COVID if that is really going to turn out to be a state of chronic low-grade inflammation that is actually accelerating the aging process in those individuals. And we know that there's some concerning data about the brain, that when people get COVID, that it can cause some alteration in the brain, inflammation, and even cortical brain shrinkage. So, you know, there's so many things that we are still learning about COVID that would certainly have tremendous effects a long term on what we are calling 
healthy longevity because this could change the outlook for so many people if they develop this type of chronic condition from COVID. So it's there's so much that we've learned and yet there's still so much more that we need to learn. And then what to do for people in these situations. That's what I'm trying to work with, with my patients with long COVID, all the things that I can do to reverse this chronic state of inflammation to help them to recover and then have a you know, quality of life. We're going to wrap the conversation up in a few moments, Felice. I want to, I think as always, try to end on a, an optimistic note. And I think you've just hit on it, really, reflecting the fact that we have learned so much over the last year or so, that uh, we are in a better position to to tackle long COVID, as you're saying, and to uh, foresee a, a future where this virus clearly isn't going to go away, but we're learning how to manage it and, and live with it, and I think ultimately be better prepared for the next one that comes along. Absolutely. I, I always want to end with the fact that we have learned things that are concerning doesn't mean that we can't do tremendous amounts to ameliorate them. And that is really people taking charge of their own health, you know, eating and choosing the right foods, the right lifestyle that is going to give them the most um, optimistic outlook for health. And, and then just accepting that there are certain things in life we can control and can't control, you know, the old adage of, you know, take charge of what you can. And there is so much that we can do to create strong, resilient bodies so that we can deal with whatever comes our way, including COVID. And you and I have been talking in the last few days offline just about the very simple benefits of going for a walk in the morning. And it's certainly something that I do. I try to make it uh, an absolute rule that I get that walk in before nine o'clock in the morning in case the day gets busy. But then at least I've had that exercise. And it really is the most simple thing you can do, isn't it? One foot in front of the other, go for a long. If you can get out into the country, that's nice. But wherever you live, you can walk around the block a few times. And the benefits are enormous, aren't they? Well, there's so many things. You're getting sunlight. You get the benefits of that. You're out in nature. So it's like a meditative state. You're relaxing. You're lowering your sympathetic output. So you're in a calm state. You're, of course, increasing your fitness. And we know that when you exercise early in the morning, you will tend to, for people who need to, control weight better. So, I mean, there's so many levels that are impacted positively by your morning uh, taking a walk out in the sun and in nature. So I, how could I not recommend that for everyone? That is an amazing first step towards health, just to do that. Take the one step after another every morning, start your day like that. Your day will look better and you'll be happier and healthier. Felice, thank you so much. You are a working doctor. I know you have patients to go away and see, so I want to try to wrap this up on time. But uh, lots and lots of really fascinating little nuggets of information in there that I'm really grateful to you for, and uh, I hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Take care. Felice Gersh, thank you so much. And this conversation will appear as a a podcast on the uh, Live Long and Master Aging podcast platform, wherever you get your podcasts in the next few days. And if anyone listening has any suggestions as to what we could talk about in the future, there are so many issues that are hugely important as uh, they apply to human longevity. Hopefully we can do those issues justice in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.
FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibers that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.